Do you believe in curses? Do you think something can happen to cast a pall over an entire group of people? If you disrespect the dead, will they find a way to get back at you? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who, in their 30-plus year career, has had a couple of close encounters with projects that may very well have been cursed. If curses exist, which I'm not convinced they do. This week, the curse of the Poltergeist movie. Were the weird accidents, illnesses, and terrible murders that happened on and around the set of Steven Spielberg's 1982 horror hit Poltergeist and its sequels the result of a curse or just a string of terrible luck? Poltergeist centers around the Freeling family who live in Cuesta Verde, a suburban planned community in Southern California. Husband and dad, Steve, works for the development company that built the community. In fact, he's their top salesman, successfully roping others into the dream of suburban life with identical homes and Norman Rockwell-esque images of wholesome America. The movie opens hot, with the very first scene hinting at the danger to come. Carol Ann Freeling, the baby of the family, is drawn to the ubiquitous TV static that used to follow the end of a channel's broadcast each night. Imagine that. TV used to just stop at night. A weird montage of patriotic images would play over the national anthem, followed by static. Carol Ann finds herself wandering downstairs toward the family room TV, sitting inches from the screen, and having a one-way conversation with someone only she can see and hear. They're here. After that, shit starts to get weird. Kitchen furniture moves and rearranges itself on its own. Extremely localized earthquakes shake the beds only in the Freeling house, and a smoke demon snakes its way out of the TV set, blasting the wall above Mr. and Mrs. Freeling's bed. Ten-ish-year-old Robbie Freeling almost gets eaten by the tree outside his bedroom window, and then the poor kid gets strangled by an oversized, creepy clown doll. He survives both attacks, but poor little Carol Ann gets sucked into some kind of portal in her closet, along with all the furniture in the room. The Freelings spend the rest of the movie trying to get their daughter back while contending with various supernatural forces wreaking havoc on their house. Mrs. Freeling, searching for her daughter, slips into the unfinished pool bed in their backyard, which has been collecting mud from the real storm outside that accompanied the paranormal storm inside. One by one, skeletons bob up to the surface around her. Coffins rise up from the murky mud and open, spilling their corpses onto Mrs. Freeling. The family narrowly escapes as the house gets swallowed into the portal. And they all live happily ever after. Actually, no, they didn't. Neither the fictional Freeling family nor, unfortunately, some of the actors who played them went on without tragedy dogging them. Only five months after the film's release, Dominique Dunn, who played the Freeling's eldest child, Dana, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It was the first death of someone attached to the film and, for some, proof that the movie was cursed. (laughs) 
Dominique was from a prominent California family. She was the daughter of famed Vanity Fair writer Dominic Dunn and the sister of Griffin Dunn, who also had some success as an actor and producer. Dominique was an up-and-coming star with dozens of TV roles under her belt. She was excited to land a major role on Poltergeist, playing Dana Freeling. Even though, frankly, the role was thankless. Then again, there weren't a lot of meaty roles for teenage girls in the early 80s, unless you were Jodie Foster, and even then, your options were not the best. Dana spends the movie eating diet foods, alluding to having sex with her boyfriend, and giving the construction workers building the pool in the backyard the finger when they grossly sexually harass her. Her mother, by the way, watches the entire interaction and then just (laughs) chuckles and shakes her head like, oh, those wacky construction workers. It's disturbing. Anyway, Dominique had gotten involved with John Sweeney, an apprentice chef under Wolfgang Puck, who moved to Los Angeles from Pennsylvania after growing up in an abusive alcoholic household. The couple moved in together after only two weeks, and it wasn't long after that Sweeney became physically violent. After months of abuse, Sweeney attempted to strangle Dominique one night. Dominique escaped through the bathroom window and basically had to go in hiding from him. She moved back in with her mother and only left the house when she thought Sweeney was working, though she did write him a heartbreaking and surprisingly clear-headed letter that read... You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you have made up in your head. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you are faced with the real me. The only man I am interested in is you, but we are not compatible. When we are good, we are great. But when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you. Eventually, Dominique persuaded Sweeney to move out of their former home. She moved back in and quickly changed the locks. But, of course, one night, Sweeney showed up on her doorstep demanding to talk. Dominique's friend David Packer was rehearsing lines with Dominique in her living room when John appeared. Dominique agreed to speak with him on the porch, hoping her friend's presence might offer some safety. Soon, Packer heard smacking noises, then two screams and a thud. He called police, who told Packer the attack was outside of their jurisdiction. I'm going to repeat that. He called the police, reporting domestic violence, and the response was basically... Sorry, pal. Not my problem. Unbelievable. Packer slipped out to run away and seek help, only to be met by Sweeney crouching in the bushes outside. Sweeney asked Packer to call the police. When police arrived, Sweeney surrendered, hands up, telling them, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. According to Sweeney's version of events, he was blacked out when he began attacking Dominique and came to while he was choking her. He says when he became aware again, he tried to revive Dominique. After he realized she was dead, however, he allegedly took two bottles of pills in an attempt to commit suicide. Sure, and I'm the Sultan of fucking Mesopotamia. 
Ambulances rushed Dominique to the hospital, but it was too late. Her heart had already stopped, and there was no way to reverse the brain death that had set in due to lack of oxygen. After four days, her family agreed to disconnect her life support. Investigators weren't buying Sweeney's I was in a fugue state when I attacked her defense. A momentary lapse in consciousness, sure, but three to five minutes? No one's here for your bullshit, Sweeney. Actually, the judge in Sweeney's trial was here for his bullshit and refused to let testimony from another of Sweeney's ex-girlfriends, who claimed he'd been physically violent with her, be used against Sweeney. Lillian Pierce testified that John had beat her 10 times during the three years they lived together from 1977 to 1980. Several times, she was hospitalized for serious injuries, including a perforated eardrum, collapsed lung, and broken nose. But Judge Burton S. I don't understand how the law works Katz was like, the law says you judge a person for his acts and not for the kind of person he has been in the past. You don't convict a person because they've done something bad in the past. And I'm no lawyer, but I mean, really? Isn't establishing a pattern like a thing? Anyway... Sweeney's lawyers used the she-was-asking-for-it defense, and the jury convicted Sweeney of voluntary manslaughter rather than the second-degree murder charge the prosecution was seeking. Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison, of which he served just over three and a half. John Sweeney eventually changed his name and moved out of Los Angeles to escape the relentless harassment he received from Dominique's family after his release. Now he lives in complete obscurity. Just kidding. He changed his name to John Mora and moved to the Pacific Northwest. As of the 90s, he was still working as a chef. Dominique's tragic murder and the extremely lenient punishment of her murderer were only the first instances in a series of awful events seemingly connected with Poltergeist. Dominique Dunn's devastating murder was followed by the sudden death of co-star Heather O'Rourke just six years later. She was only 12 years old. In the Poltergeist films, Heather played Carol Ann Freeling, the sister of Dominique's character Dana, and the character who gets the brunt of the haunting, or whatever it is Poltergeist do to people. Possession? Heather had been diagnosed with Crohn's disease and was being treated for it with steroids. You can see the side effects of the steroids on Heather's face in the third Poltergeist movie with her unusually puffy cheeks. But toward the end of filming the third movie, Heather was rushed to the hospital during what her parents believed was a particularly grueling bout of the flu. Heather went into cardiac arrest on the drive. It turned out Heather had been misdiagnosed and did not have Crohn's disease, but instead was suffering from an extremely rare congenital disease that was causing a blockage in her bowels. No one had caught the blockage in time, and it burst inside her gut, poisoning her from within. Heather was rushed to the nearby children's hospital, but it was too late. Heather's death was particularly shocking, given her age. Doctors say she showed no symptoms of the bowel defect that led to her death. It's virtually unheard of for a child not to display any symptoms in their youth. 
Dr. Hartley Cohen, a USC gastroenterologist, put it simply, it just doesn't seem to quite make sense. Heather's death fueled the sentiment that there was a curse on the Poltergeist movies. But the accidents associated with the Poltergeist film began even before filming ended. Early on in the first film, the Freeling's son, Robbie, gets strangled by a hideous life-size clown doll. Why this goddamn clown is there in the first place is a mystery. The rest of the room is outfitted in Star Wars-themed stuff, which you'd think was a little on the nose for Spielberg. But honestly, what 10-year-old boy's room wasn't decorated head-to-toe in Star Wars stuff in the early 80s? Robbie hates the doll, and rightly so. It's creepy and terrible. And of course, the clown becomes possessed by the poltergeist, pulls Robbie under the bed, wraps its arms around Robbie's neck, and chokes him. During filming of the scene, something went wrong with the mechanics inside the doll, and its grip grew too tight. Actor Oliver Robbins began to yell out that he couldn't breathe. Thinking Robbins was taking creative liberty with the scene and improvising a reaction, no one on set reacted. It wasn't until the little boy's face began to turn color that Spielberg jumped in to pry the doll's arms from around Robbins' neck. In an interview with the now-defunct website Icons of Fright, Robbins said, The doll got caught around my neck, and I was in a tight, confined space under the bed, and... It's almost like a car accident. You know how a car accident happens so fast you don't remember, but if you don't act, something is going to happen? Well, Steven saw that and he pulled me away from it. (laughs) Who knows what might have happened otherwise. Fortunately, Robbins was totally fine and now has a great party anecdote about Steven Spielberg saving his life. But Robbins wasn't the only cast member who nearly died. Actor Richard Lawson, who plays Ryan, a paranormal investigator in the film, would have perished in a plane crash if it hadn't been for the kindness of a flight attendant who was a fan of Lawson's work. The flight attendant recognized Lawson and quickly promoted him to first class. The flight, U.S. Air Flight 405, accumulated an unsafe amount of frost while taxiing on the runway. When the plane took off, it wasn't able to gain the necessary altitude needed for flight and ended up crashing into the freezing water of Flushing Bay off the end of the runway. A total of 51 people died. Of the 24 who made it out alive, one was Richard Lawson. Unfortunately, the man who took Richard's originally assigned economy seat perished on the flight. Had Lawson not been offered a random seat upgrade, he very likely would have died. And, fun fact, Richard Lawson recently married Tina Knowles, Beyoncé and Solange's mother, after a decades-long friendship. The curse must not be that serious if someone from Poltergeist was lucky enough to become Beyoncé's stepfather. A lot less life-threatening, but still pretty strange, was what happened to Jo Beth Williams, who played the Freeling family's matriarch, Diane. Joe Beth began to experience some odd phenomena at home. For instance, she told E! True Hollywood Story that she would come back to her apartment every night after shooting for a grueling 18 hours to find that something had tilted her paintings just slightly. At first, she thought her upstairs neighbors were dancing or that traffic caused the art to shift. But after it happened several times, she wasn't so sure. 
Williams told an interviewer, I began to think, is somebody trying to send me a message that I shouldn't be doing this film? In another frightening incident where the curse followed someone to their home, a bolt of lightning struck the apartment of James Kahn, the author working on the novelization of Poltergeist. He says that as he was putting the finishing touches on the novel, lightning hit his building. The power went out. The facing on the air conditioner unit blew off, flew across the room, and hit me in the back, Khan said. The lights flickered back on after a minute or so. When the TV turned on, Khan said there was a video game on it that began to play itself. The so-called poltergeist curse didn't end with the first movie. No, the two sequels and the 2015 remake were all allegedly plagued by the same curse as well even though an attempt had been made to cleanse the set. On the set of the second movie, actor Will Sampson, who also purported to be a shaman, got access to the set after hours and performed an exorcism to clear out any ghosts or demons that might have been hanging around causing trouble. Supposedly, the cast and crew felt an enormous sense of relief the next day when they arrived on set. Despite that, though the mishaps continued to hound the Poltergeist franchise. A massive explosion on the set of Poltergeist 3 caused $250,000 in damages to an office building in Oak Brook Terrace. Three people were treated for minor injuries and released shortly after. During filming of one of the sequels, actress Zelda Rubinstein, who played Tangina in all three films, had a paranormal experience on the set. During a still photography session, Zelda believes a ray of light obscured her face at the exact moment of her mother's death. There's a picture of Rubenstein where her face is covered completely by the light, which the actress claims was taken at the same exact moment her mother passed. During the 2015 filming of the Poltergeist remake, the director, Gil Keenan, claimed there was one location on which electronics didn't work. Lights that worked elsewhere didn't work there. Drones used for filming malfunctioned. He speculated the land was haunted, used previously for some insidious purpose he refused to investigate out of fear. Also, Keenan claimed that the house he rented during filming was haunted by a female spirit dressed all in black. Keenan clarified that the spirit didn't follow him back to his home in Los Angeles. People accused Keenan of making up scary stories for marketing purposes, although, if you think about it, isn't that sort of the entire horror movie industry? Another awful death related to the Poltergeist franchise was that of Lou Perryman. He had a small role, so his murder isn't often mentioned in the lore of the Poltergeist curse. Lou played one of the construction workers digging out the Freeling's new pool and sexually harassing the daughter in the original Poltergeist. In 2009, a man named Seth Tatum supposedly went into a fugue state and began wandering the streets of Austin, Texas. Tatum had a history of substance abuse issues and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. His mom, Joan Tatum, told an Austin newspaper that he had recently stopped taking his medications because he didn't think they were helping him. Joan said Tatum asked her to admit him into Seton Shoal Creek Hospital, but that the family couldn't afford it. An argument for universal health care if I've ever heard one. The day after asking to be admitted to the hospital for help, Seth attacked his mom's boyfriend, Carl Drake, with whom he had had bad blood. Seth struck Carl while Carl was sitting on the toilet, leaving him with a fractured skull. 
Seth then left the house and ventured over two miles away from his home, where he met Lou Perryman. Initially, Seth engaged Lou in conversation to try to steal his car, but eventually Lou went inside, followed by Seth. It's unclear whether Lou invited him in or if Seth walked in of his own accord. Seth was on drugs and armed with an axe. I don't know how or where he was hiding an axe during his chat with Lou. Like, did he just have an axe down his pants? Anyway, once inside, Seth began to strike Lou. He hit Lou over 10 times, mostly in the head, and then drove away in Lou's car. When he supposedly came to in the morning, Seth drove straight to a sheriff's station and turned himself in. Lou's friends remembered him fondly. They said he was a pioneer in Austin's acting scene who loved just about everyone. In fact, one of Lou's friends said he probably would have felt sorry for this lonesome son of a bitch that killed him. Although a couple more cast members from the Poltergeist franchise have passed away, the circumstances haven't been as mysterious. For instance, Julian Beck, who played the evil spirit Kane in Poltergeist 2, passed away from stomach cancer at the age of 60, just seven months before the film's release. 53-year-old Will Sampson, who played the good spirit Taylor in Poltergeist 2 and who had exercised the set, also passed away from a post-operative kidney infection after a heart and lung transplant. He died over a year after the film's release. If they had passed around the same time, maybe that would have been kind of spooky, but one and a half years apart seems fairly normal and doesn't appear to have added much fuel to the speculation that there's a poltergeist curse. But what could it be? Was there really something that sparked a curse on the poltergeist franchise? According to fans, the mishaps and tragedy surrounding the cast and crew of Poltergeist began when they filmed the infamous skeletons in the pool scene. One might assume, if one isn't particularly macabre, that the skeletons used in the scene were fake. But apparently, one might be wrong. The skeletons Joe Beth spent days hobnobbing with while they shot this scene were actual skeletons. Propmaster Bruce Casson purchased them from Carolina Biological, a company that sold real human skeletons to medical schools. It was apparently cheaper to purchase real skeletons than to make fake ones out of rubber or whatever, which sort of has to make you wonder about the state of the human skeleton industry in this country. Fake skeletons, now easy to find, were hard to come by in the 80s, so real skeletons had to do. Special effects makeup artist Craig Reardon points out movies have used real human skeletons in them for years. He says the films House on Haunted Hill and the 1931 version of Frankenstein both use skeletons from medical supply stores, and they're not followed by a curse mythology. Reardon says... No low-budget B-film is going to pay anybody to sculpt a human skeleton when all you had to do was go to a biological supply house and get a human skeleton. You know, wake up and smell the budget. That's really the way it worked. Reardon called the idea that a curse led to the death of Dominique and Heather offensive and pernicious. In an interview later, Joe Beth Williams said... You have to understand that this sequence took probably four or five days to shoot. So I was in the mud and goop all day, every day, for like four or five days with skeletons all around me as I was screaming. 
And sure, it sounds pretty awful to be trapped in a mud pit for days with real skeletons because, well, it is awful. But why that would cause a curse is unclear. Human skeletons and remains are used all over the place for all sorts of things. I mean, usually it's for, you know, science. But who knows, maybe the people whose skeletons were used in Poltergeist had been huge horror fans who would have been thrilled to know they got feature parts in one of the most beloved horror films of all time. Besides, if using human skeletons could cause a curse, then the Body Worlds company that does exhibits of actual human bodies and who has been accused of using the bodies of people who never agreed to donate their bodies to science and of people who may have, in fact, been disappeared while alive so their bodies could be sold, that company would have a curse the size of China over it. Is there a curse or just a series of tragic deaths with a few coincidences sprinkled in? It seems likely that over a series of four movies with hundreds of cast and crew members, horrible things were likely to happen in a few of their lives. And as we see in the deaths of Julian Beck and Will Sampson, it's hard to determine when a curse stops being a curse and becomes just your run-of-the-mill bad shit happening to people. Oliver Robbins, the former child actor of clown doll strangulation fame, does not believe there's a poltergeist curse, only a series of sad events. He says, there is no curse, it is just tragic coincidences. People may try to connect the dots and make something out of it, but they are possibly going to make connections that probably aren't there. Zelda Rubinstein, despite her own spooky claims that a light ray obscured her face at the exact moment of her mother's death on set, believes the curse idea to be total bullshit. Zelda agrees with Craig Reardon that the curse rumor is downright offensive. She laid it out concisely during a Showbiz Today interview on CNN, where she said, I owe it to Heather to present her case as most honestly and lovingly as I can. I love this child very much, and I am still very grieved at her passing. Uh, Heather died... Uh, because of an undetected uh, con congenital anatomical defect. Uh, Julian Beck died from cancer in his mature years. Will Sampson passed away after receiving a heart-lung transplant. It's my understanding he had an environmental disease. And Dominique Dunn died at the hands of, of an extremely ill-directed, passionate boyfriend. Uh, these are reasons. I do not call this a jinx. So uh, I think that it's pretty much a courtesy to put to an end this uh, superstitious um, crap. And aside from her assessment that Dominique's murder was the result of ill-directed passion, I have to say I agree. About four women are killed by their spouse or partner in the U.S. every day. Trying to blame domestic violence on a curse is insulting. We have a tendency, we humans, to try to make sense of tragedy. We thrive on order. When things happen that don't make sense, we naturally try to find a culprit. 
If we can pin it on something otherworldly, we can absolve ourselves of any responsibility we might have. If we can find the root cause of terrible events, maybe we can prevent them from happening in the future. If all it took to prevent domestic violence was using fake skeletons instead of real ones, we somehow take away the very real possibility that domestic violence can happen to us or someone we love. It also deflects blame from where it should be, which is on the abuser. If the death of a child can be explained away with a curse, it helps us deal with the incomprehensibility of the death of a child. It could be that if we tried, we could find just as many accidents and tragedies associated with any movie franchise. If we tried connecting incidents that happened to casts and crews of other random films back to something that happened on their sets, you might find other versions of the real human skeleton story. Is it the nature of a horror film that lends itself to rumors of a curse? Would we attribute a series of terrible coincidences connected with, say, the Winnie the Pooh franchise to a curse? Or would we see those for what they are, a collection of thousands of people connected by one movie or series of movies experiencing the kinds of things humans experience all the time? If Poltergeist had been a children's movie whose cast and crew experienced the same accidents and tragedies, would we call that a curse? Or would we even notice the connection at all? In closing, I'll tell you about a movie I worked on that was most definitely cursed. I won't tell you what movie it was, though it's not like my IMDb is that long. You know what I mean? First off, the story for the film had been stolen from its original creators. The budget was about $5.36 and a hearty handshake. The premise relied heavily on the ethnicity of the characters, and yet the two leads were most definitely not the correct ethnicity. Neither was I, mind you, but (laughs) I can fake an accent pretty okay. We shot in a sweltering basement and spent days on a dinner scene having to eat cold, congealed mush with gusto. No one had any idea what was going on. Like, ever. And someone very high up in the production, someone whose presence was vital for the making of the actual film, someone important seemed to be high on pain pills the entire time. His response to any question brought to him was, sure, whatever. I don't know if anyone connected to the film has died, and certainly no one was strangled by an animatronic clown during production, but I'll tell you this, that damn movie keeps haunting me. Just when I think it's been forgotten and we can all move on, it pops up on some godforsaken streaming service, and I inevitably get a phone call from someone going, wow, that was not a good movie. Sometimes it doesn't take real human remains to curse a film. Sometimes a movie is just so bad, it curses itself. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Double Double, Toil and Trouble, Fire Burn and Cauldron Bubble. In the 1600s in Massachusetts, something dark and evil was spreading through the town. But spoiler alert, it wasn't witches. The Salem Witch Trials. 
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia and Lauren Hooper. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>